you to anybody else? Could it be that you are at the point of uh, desperation? Perhaps uh, because of your family circumstance or your financial situation, maybe because of your health, maybe because of your job, that today, this morning and here, you feel almost without hope. Is that you? Whether or not that's you right now, I think you do know, don't you, that this is a point that that all of us can can get to in this life, isn't it? Because even uh, as Christians and for Christians, we can reach what seems to be our wit's end. Well, uh, let me do this. Let me remind you what is about to happen here and now just now. Right in this moment, we, we believe this, don't we? That our maker is about to speak to us in his word. Don't we believe that? Isn't that what's about to happen? And this morning, amazingly, what we're going to hear is our God address us on that very subject, that most crucial of subjects, in Luke chapter 8, in the experiences of the two people we're going to encounter, we will hear our God speak to us and speak to us about uh, desperation, speak to us about faith. So it's a somber somber topic, a somber portion of scripture in many ways. And so I think it'd be fitting that we pray and ask God to help, don't we? Let's pray. Lord God, we are frail and feeble. We are flawed and sinful and we need you desperately. And so we do pray just now that you would grant us, despite what we are like in our hardness, grant us softness, grant us a, a heart that receives from you. Well, show us, Lord, your truth and show us Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. In case you have scripture there, uh, first thing that I think we ought to notice together is this. Let's consider trusting Jesus in despair. Okay, trusting Jesus in despair. Now, have you heard of the uh, the film, let's say, I think it's 2004, thereabouts, 2005, the film Crash uh, before. Maybe that rings a bell, maybe it doesn't. This is not a recommendation. This is not Barry Norman or Jonathan Ross. I'm not even convinced that I've seen the film in its entirety, but I do know this. I know that that film Crash was widely acclaimed when it was uh, first released. I think it received a, a, an Oscar, perhaps even, for Best Picture. And part of the reason for that uh, success was the clever way that this film is constructed and put together. So instead of doing what Hollywood usually does, you know, instead of this movie telling one consistent, straightforward storyline, what did this film do? It told any number of storylines and eventually they intertwined and came together at the end of the film. So lots of acclamation, lots of praise for the, for the clever way it's put together. Now, as you've got scripture in front of you, what do you notice? If you've been working your way through Luke's gospel, you certainly notice a similar thing could be said here. Like usually in the gospel according to Luke, if we are dealing with a person 
let's say it's a demoniac, or if we're dealing with people, if it's Jesus' family, or we're dealing with a situation, what does Luke do normally? I will tell you, the author just deals with that thing alone. But what do we have here? Do you notice? We've got a couple of characters this time, and their stories are intertwined. Who are they? Well, we start with his father, don't we? With a, a sick child, we start with him. Then we move, and we go to this woman. What, what, well, what do we do? This woman with a, a problem, an issue of blood. We go to her, then we go back to... We, then we go back to this father for this man. So, so we ask, don't we? Like, why is it constructed like this? Or we ask, I suppose, more pertinently, what are we going to do? Uh, St. Peter's right. What are we going to do with this just now? Well, uh, as you look at this portion of Scripture, as you consider these two people side by side just now, I'm going to ask you to, to do two things under this heading. As you look at this father and then this woman together two things we do these number one i want you to give some thought to how they differ and how they're contrasted so i turn it over to you how do they differ uh, it's an obvious thing isn't it <laughs> come on andy uh, one's a man one's a woman right so there's this obvious contrast what else do you notice what about their characters? Aren't they quite different in character? Like this guy seems quite bold, doesn't he? Like he goes up, confronts Jesus. What about the woman in the story? Isn't anything bold, quite timid, wouldn't you say? No? What, what, what about their naming? Do you notice how that one's named and one's not? What's the, what's the guy's name? Jairus. What's the woman's name? We're not told. Like contrast difference, contrast difference. I think most importantly, we need to notice the difference in their status or their influence. I wonder if we could actually just put up verse 41, or if you could put an eye to verse 41. Think about their status. So who is this guy that we're dealing with? Who's this man, Jairus? What are you told? So he is a, what is it? He's a ruler of the synagogue. What does that mean? Uh, let's put it in colloquial terms. Do you know what it means? It means he's a big chief, right? So who's Jairus? What do you need to know about Jairus? Jairus is a bit of a big deal, okay? There's Jairus. Like he was an elder in charge of the community or one of the elders in charge of the community. Like big dude, big chief. But what about the woman? Like this issue of blood for her, it meant that she was pushed to the very fringes and the periphery of society. So this issue of blood, it meant that she was what was called ceremonially unclean. Do you follow that? That means like you've got a big chief and then you've got this woman who is not viewed as being fit to be part of the religious worship or even public life. So you're in St. Peter's and you're looking at those two people and you're with me, there's a, there is a distinct contrast here, isn't there? Don't you think? That's the first thing that I want you to do. The second thing that I want you to do is to notice what unites them or to think about how they're drawn together. And um, we've actually, I think, a few times since I've been here, we have talked about the need for 
uh, careful reading of Scripture. You know, that sort of idea where we don't really want to just skim read the Bible. That we, that there's, there's war and, and need often for a slow reading of Scripture. So with that at the back of our minds, I wonder this. I wonder this morning, in the reading, did you notice that Luke uses a device in this reading? And it's a device that he uses to draw this man and the woman together. Did you notice that? Did you notice this? That Luke uses a series of quite obvious language pairs to show us the sort of common ground that this man and this woman, did, did you know, that they have? Did you notice the language pairs or not in the reading? Well, how old was the man's child? Verse 42, she was 12 years, wasn't she? How long has this woman suffered with this illness? Did you, did you pick up on it? 12 years. How was the man's child described? Did you notice it? It's something like a daughter, a daughter, a daughter. How does Jesus describe this poor woman? Did you notice? He's for the only time in the New Testament, he, he calls someone a daughter. And then there's, in both situations, there's ridicule of Jesus. And then in both situations, how is it that the two characters react to Jesus? Did you pick up on that one? What did they do? Twice. I think it's verse, what is it, 41, 47. Both of them are said to fall. That's quite unusual, isn't it? They both fall at the feet of Jesus. All of these language, why is Luke doing that? If you want to answer it for yourself, why is Luke showing us these common grounds? Is it simply just to show us that all types of people can face despair? Is that the message? I don't think so. I think it's more. Please hear this. What we see here is that no matter who we are, no matter what we are, the place to go in our despair is straight to Jesus of Nazareth. I wonder if you, you hear that this morning. Maybe you need to hear it, that Jesus of Nazareth must be your destination with your desperation. To Jesus you go. He must be your destination with your desperation. And if you just just now notice the last and most prominent word pair, you're going to see that so clearly. So let's do it together. Look at verse 48. So what's the word pair? What does Jesus say to the woman? Do you notice this? Oh, the love here. Listen to it. He says to the woman, your belief, your faith has made you well. So that's on one side. What's the pair? Look at verse 50 now. He now says to the man, don't fear, only have faith, only believe. Did you see what we're being shown here is the need to place our trust, our faith in Jesus in times of deepest need. Jesus may be your, your destination in your desperation. So I ask you again, how have you come into this room has it been really hard for you this morning? Like if you come and you're at your wit's end and you come, if you come in desperation, then of course, if you are not yet trusting in Jesus, here that there needs to be initial faith. Literally, what Jesus says to this woman is as follows. Literally, it reads, he looks at it and says, your faith has saved you. 
there needs to be initial faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you are a believer, you're a Christian in here, but you are at the end of your tether, then hear Almighty God's word. And from that place of despair, even now during the sermon, go to Jesus. Even right now in prayer, go and fall at the feet of your faith. Go and fall at Jesus' feet. Go and reach out in faith and touch the hem of the garment of the one who really does love you. Who is right now watching over you and waiting for you. Go and reach out to him, the one who cares for you. So trusting Jesus in despair. The second thing we must notice here, though, is acknowledging Jesus in difficulty. I'll say that again. So the second heading we see is acknowledging Jesus in difficulty. Take a moment, breathe, come back to me. What have we done? What were we doing? We were looking, weren't we, at both of these people, weren't we? We were almost examining them side by side, this father of the sick child and the woman. What were we doing? We were looking at their, the way they're contrasted, and we were also, I think, looking at their common ground, weren't we? In the way that this, is, uh, this section is constructed, I think it's also legitimate for you and I, not just to look at them side by side, but to take them one after the other. And that's what I want us to do ever so briefly just now, to look at them one after the other. And as always, it's ladies first, isn't it? Um, so would you do this? Would you just take a moment and focus on and consider this woman with the issue of blood? Now, Christian friends, why is this here? This woman with this issue of blood, why does God, what do we learn from her? Well, I think as soon as we, surely it's the same for you, but as soon as we zero in on this woman, our, am I not right in saying our hearts go out to her? I hope that's true of you. I mean, we, we've said lots of times that the ancient world was a rather unforgiving place for a woman to be. We've said that a lot. But if you throw in a lengthy, undiagnosed illness into that mix, then I think almost that you and I can probably struggle to even imagine how difficult this was for her, don't you think? What did I say earlier on? I said that she was ceremonially unclean, yeah? So she's excluded to a certain extent. But let's pick up on some of the details as well. Did you notice the financial implications here? Like, do you see what Luke says? I think it's verse 43. He says that this woman has spent <laughs> everything that she has on unsuccessful treatments. Now, you remember, please, with me, there's not a welfare system. There's no benefits. Like, she's ill, but she's destitute as well, isn't she? And then, you, you think about what we're told elsewhere. So in Mark's gospel, you can read it this afternoon, but Mark tells us even more. Like Mark tells us, this woman has undergone any number of unsuccessful treatments. Now, these treatments have not just not helped her. Mark tells us that those treatments have actually made her situation even worse. Like she's more ill because of this. And so I think you stand back and you look at this woman. Oh, come on, please. We, our heart goes out to her. 
Like, you know, let's not just leave it there. No, I would rather that we didn't just ponder her plight. What I would love for you to do is actually just to track her movement. Can you do that? Would you do that? Track her movement. So, so Jesus comes back, doesn't he, to the west side of, the, of Galilee. After, you remember, after that big storm, he comes back to the west side of Galilee and she hears, doesn't she? And in her desperation, and, and don't you think perhaps surely in physical pain, covertly, secretly, what does she do? But she joins this big crowd that's all following Jesus and pressing on around. And then the moment comes, doesn't it? The moment comes. And, and she summons up all the courage in the world that she can muster. And she kind of pushes her way through the crowd. And then she edges towards Jesus. She reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And then, and it's quite difficult to describe or understand how she knows or what. But there must have been, I think, just this washing over her of well-being. Right? Don't you think? Just this immediate respiration. She knows in that second... She's made well. And you might think, joy. But it's a little bit different, isn't it? Because right then and there, everything stops. You know, this, this whole crowd that's moving forward, everyone just freezes because Jesus stops, doesn't he? And Jesus turns around and Jesus speaks. And this woman who wanted anonymity, she wanted secrecy. This woman in that moment is forced to, 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 to own up <laughs> and to, to speak up. And to do that in front of everyone watching on in that crowd. Now, you, you'll, you'll definitely agree with me that it's an evocative scene in the way that Luke writes it. Isn't it so vivid in the way that Luke writes? But what I want you to do is notice, just to go back to one tiny, tiny little detail. Juliet, I wonder if you would put up verse 45. Let's look at this tiny detail. So we go back a little bit. She's reached out her hand, hasn't she? The hem of the garment. And she's made well. Everyone stops. Jesus turns around. And then Jesus asks, who was it that touched me? Now, this is the question I've got for you. Why does Jesus ask that question? Why does Jesus stop and ask, who touched me? Is there anyone at St. Peter's who thinks Jesus didn't know? I mean, in Luke's gospel, in the previous chapters, we've seen that Jesus knows people's actions. He knows even their thoughts. Why does he ask this question? I wonder if you can see. In that moment there, what Jesus is doing is prompting this woman to make a public declaration. Isn't that what's happening here? Jesus, by asking this question, is setting the scene to, to just, just to draw her out. Though she wants anonymity, he is prompting her to make this open declaration that Jesus has actually made her well. What do you see here? What do you see? Surely you see our Lord's desire that his people, you and I, publicly acknowledge him and his power. We see that Jesus, desi Jesus desires his people 
publicly acknowledge him. Standing up here to minister this church, I think that is an incredibly important truth for us to grasp at St. Peter's. Living where we do and when we do. I'll, I'll read you, I think it's two lines. It's a quote, and it's a quote from that I stole from a, a commentator. Now, it rocked my world, it rocked my life. See if it does the same for you. Listen. The person writes, never keep silence or accustom yourself to reticence. He's writing to the Christians. He goes and says, you must speak out for the Christ. He who does not do so or his, who is loath to do so because of embarrassment becomes guilty of denying his Savior. You read that last bit again? You must speak for Jesus, the one who doesn't do so or is loath to do so because of embarrassment. He becomes guilty of denying his Savior. Does it, does it not rock us a little bit? Like, does it not challenge us a little bit? But what I would love for you to do is just to consider that aware of the increasing temptation towards silence that you and I face in our particular context. Increasing temptation towards silence. Can you see what I mean? Let's say we were believers in the Bible Belt in the United States just now. Or let's say that we were Christians in a land that does not have a history of Christianity, but suddenly is having this new and burgeoning uh, Christian church. It might now, I'm going to say might, it perhaps, it might be easier in those contexts. I don't know, but it might be easier to, to, to own up and speak up for Jesus. But where are you? Where do we live? Like in a context that, of a society that is deeply suspicious of Christians. Guys, deeply suspicious of the Bible. In a society, let's be honest, in a society that views Christians as just bigots, gross, maybe even wicked, it is tough. And it's getting tougher to make that stand and say, I actually know the healing that Jesus of Nazareth alone pr provides, but it is so important that we do that. And so again, I ask you, where are you with these things, Christian friend? Let's be honest before our God. Where are we? Is it the case that the people in your life, that they know for sure that you love Jesus? And are, are, are we people who are really quite quick to talk to the people in our lives about Jesus? What about the people at university? Do they know? The people at school, people in our families, our, our communities, our, our, our colleagues? Or if we're really honest, is there often an embarrassed silence? Now, if there is that, two tiny little details. Number one, do you know that this woman that we're focusing on here, she wasn't allowed to be there? Because she was ceremonially unclean, she was absolutely forbidden from being there. Like she, I mean, to stand up and, and say, Jesus healed me, to, to say that she's risking everything. Like she's risking ridicule, rebuke, works. That's one detail. The second detail is, is 
is the only thing I would ask you to consider. Is it possible that God is speaking to you personally this morning? Is it possible that God has brought you in here and shown you this woman being so bold? Is it possible that God is imploring you to follow suit? Imploring you to stand up and to say for all the people in your life to know it is true. I know the healing that only Jesus of Nazareth provides. I know the salvation of the Lord. Three key sentences, acknowledging Jesus in difficulty. And then the last thing, and the most brief of the lot. And we see trusting Jesus in despair, acknowledging Jesus in difficulty. But the third thing is hearing Jesus, wait, hearing Jesus in death. Hearing Jesus in death. Because the last thing we have to do, if we've looked at these two people together, then we've looked at the woman. What's the last thing we've got to do? We've at least got to consider this man, this father with a sick child in St. Peter's. If our hearts went out to that woman, at a point here, does your heart not go out to the father of this child? Because Jesus is delayed. He's delayed dealing with the woman. What does the delay mean? News comes from the house that it's too late, Jairus. It's too late. Your your daughter has died. Does it not move you? It moves me as I stand up here. It moves me for any number of reasons. And when I first came into ministry, um, and I just started as a minister sort of 13 years ago, something like that, in London, I was asked uh, to conduct my uh, first funeral. Uh, a first funeral, and it was the first funeral was the funeral of a lovely uh, five-year-old uh, girl. And I remember, and I always remember the uh, the father in that situation uh, coming to me and asking me, "So you're going to preach?" And he said, "Preach your heart out." And he said, "And also, I've got a text for you." And it was these verses, and he wanted these verses. Uh, preach to you. So if we put them up on the screen, and as you look at them, it'll be a squash on the screen, and you remember what's happening here. Jesus and Jairus are just going back to this house. Imagine that journey for Jairus. I want to ask you, what grabs your attention? What, what, where does your eye go in that text? And what now, what could, it could be a number of things. So I'm going to ask you, I want to see if it's true. What grabs your attention? Is it the, the loving hint <laughs> that Jesus gives the people at the house what he's about to do? Did you notice the loving hint when he arrives and he says, actually, she's not dead. She's, she's asleep. Isn't that lovely? This hint of what's coming next. Does that grab your attention? Maybe it's not that. Maybe it is the beautiful uh, intimacy that Jesus uh, secures here. Did you notice that? Like, it's very different. The previous miracle was incredibly public, wasn't it? This big crowd and this woman. But here, did you notice the privacy? But Jesus makes sure it is only the closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and mum, and dad, 
He just ensures that it's that little group that are in this room with his dead child. Maybe that, maybe it's that that grabs your attention. Or maybe it's the, the, the sinlessness, the purity of Jesus here. That grab your attention. That here is the one who was able to be touched by this unclean woman and he remains undefiled. And now in this room, what's he able to do? He alone is able to reach out and touch a dead body. He's able to take this dead child by the hand and still he remains, you know, blizzard, impervious to it. He remains undefiled. Maybe it's that that grabs your attention. If it's any one of these things, lovely, great, they should all grab our attention. This is the problem though. This is the worry. Make sure, Christian friends, that you do not miss the main detail and the main point of this text. Like if you've been here at St. Peter's, you'll realize where we are. You'll realize that we are right at the end of this little mini section where Jesus has performed four miracles. They're supposed to, to unpack for us the extent of Jesus' power. Can you remember what these four miracles are? What's he done? Do you remember that he stilled the sea? You remember that, don't you? And then, think about the summer. I wasn't here. But somebody came along and ruined my sermon series in the summer. And they preached. What did Jesus do? He dealt with the demoniac, didn't he, in the previous section. That's the second miracle. Third miracle, he dealt with his woman, with this issue of blood. And so do you see, as you walk into that room with this dead girl and her parents, do you see what's happening? This is the apex of it all, isn't it? This is the pinnacle. We're supposed to marvel at the, the real extent of Jesus' power. Here is the one who doesn't just have power over disasters or demons or, or disease, but here is the one who, he even has power over death. And perhaps it is this morning at St. Peter's that you need to be reminded of that glorious truth. Because maybe the despair that you're facing is a despair that is caused by death. Maybe it's the despair of grief and bereavement. Maybe it's the despair because your loved ones are ill or you are ill. Maybe God is reminding you that your Savior, the one you are united to by faith, is the one so in control that he can dangle the keys of death and Hades. If so, hear that message and rejoice. Because you know what's going to happen, Christian friends? In death, you and your loved ones are going to hear the very same phrase that you've got in front of you just now. This is a glorious thought, isn't it? In the resurrection, you and your loved ones are going to hear the voice of Jesus speak to you. What's he going to say? He's going to look at you and say, son. And he's going to look at you and say, daughter. And as was heard in that room, he's going to look to you and say, child, arise. And perhaps this morning, and maybe as always, we need to remind ourselves how snappy this so monumental a thought. Christ defeated death, how can that be? But are you not shown right at the end of the section? Is there not a hint? Do you see it? Look, unlike it as with the demoniac, the demoniac was told, go and tell Go and tell. Look at the parents. 
The parents hear, they're told, shh, don't, don't tell anyone. Like Jesus clearly doesn't want the crowd whipped up into a frenzy by this miracle of resurrection. Why? Why? Because Jesus still had work to do. Isn't that right? Everything in his ministry is moving forward from here, from that room to a tomb, wasn't it? Everything in his ministry moving forward to a different location. That Jesus would go on from here and go on to a cross. He would go to a place of execution where he would become sacrifice. He would for you become unclean. A place for you that he would become sin. A place where the very son of God, the one whose hem of a garment in Isaiah 6 can fill the whole temple, who not only tasted death, but would go on to defeat death for all who will trust in him. I wonder, Christian friends, did you come in here to stay right? Look to Jesus Christ and despair no more. He reigns. He is your Lord. And not even death can separate you from his love. May it be that he receives all glory, all honor, and all praise. Let's pray.